All right, well, before I, I begin this morning, I just want to call up Nathan Reed. Uh Nathan, as many of you know, has been fencing at Ohio State, done very well at that, been also involved in Caps Crusade uh, for Christ's crew, now is what it's called, also has uh, obtained, made the dean's list, he's a scholar athlete, so he's like a, a hero at Iowa State, Ohio State. He's going to share what he's doing this summer, just asked him to come on up, want to share. Yeah, so uh, I'm Nathan. For those of you that don't know me, I've been coming to this church since um, I was like three years old, back when we used to meet in Rockford Christian with those hard blue plastic chairs. Um, but yeah, I am going to Ohio State now, and uh, I got involved with Crew, used to be known as Campus Crusade. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to be going to on a summer mission with Crew to Slovenia over the summer. And... Um, yeah, when I'm there, we're going to be um, witnessing to the college students at the University of Ljubljana, as well as running two-week-long English camps for the high schoolers in the area. So I'd really appreciate if you guys could pray for um, our team that is going to Slovenia, as well as the students in Slovenia, that they would be receptive to the gospel. So, yeah. Father, I do pray for Nathan. Just thank you for what a great encouragement he's been to all of us. I remember on his 18th birthday, he preached Habakkuk's kerfuffle for us. What a a great time that was. And just would pray that you would bless him in these days at Ohio State. God, thank you for the ways you're prospering him. Would pray that he'd have opportunities with crew to minister and to serve and to help amidst his busy schedule. Would pray that you'd help him raise the funds. God, to go to Slovenia and pray his time there would be profitable and helpful. We pray that you would guide him in the direction you would have him go. Uh, with his fencing, with his life, with his ministry, God, with his degree, God, he has been a great blessing to us. We pray that you would bless him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, Nathan, you are a blessing. Just know that. Know that for sure. All right, well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew. I'm sorry, Matthew. We're in Romans. We're in Romans. Chapter 14, holy cow. And uh, it's on page 949 of your pew Bibles, if that's all you have, would encourage you though, if you have that, to, to be there. And we've been in chapter 14 for the, for the past few weeks, really looking at the issue of, of those who've come to Christ from different backgrounds and, and different habits and different customs and different cultures all come together through faith in Jesus Christ to the church. And it's there at the church, and they, they have these differences of, of opinions based upon what they've grown up with. Just, it's just a battle in how they would deal with each other. And Paul has been exhorting them in, in Romans chapter 14 to live in harmony with one another. And he's giving counsel as to how to do that. And in Romans 14, we've seen two classes of people. There are the strong people... And the weak people. And what's important to us to understand is is who the strong are and who the weak are. Because you might have a a wrong perception in your mind. Because when you think of someone who's strong, you might picture the the weightlifter who has muscles bursting out of his skin. Who can lift hundreds of pounds and run many miles. Suppose when we think about weak people, we think about the typical skinny guy who has no arms. Right? Maybe he thinks he's strong, but he can barely lift 10 pounds. And obviously Romans chapter 14 isn't talking about physical strength. Romans 14 is talking about spiritual strength. The strong are those who understand the gospel and are rooted in the gospel. And who understand their own sin. And understand the righteousness of Christ and all that he has done and accomplished for us. And that, that by faith alone in him we are made righteous. They, they understand that, and it's not their own righteousness which merits or deserves anything before the Lord, but it is, it is God's righteousness that does that. And, and, and there's a freedom in the gospel that it brings. And the strong are those who, who understand that freedom, and they're, they're free to pursue the righteousness of God. They're, pursue, they're free to pursue loving hearts that desire to serve Him in, in every way. And when Paul describes the, the strong and weak, though, he describes them in terms of, of what... They eat. In fact, look at verse 2 of Romans 14. He says this. 
He says, one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the weak person eats only vegetables because he grew up in a home probably under the Jewish dietary laws of the Old Testament, which advocated just certain kinds of meat and said you could eat cow, but you couldn't eat pork or rabbit or shrimp and definitely not any meat with blood in it. And so to be in complete compliance to the law, the weak wouldn't eat any meat lest there be a drop of blood in that meat. And they ate only vegetables. But when Paul described the the strong person, we know him as the one who can eat anything. And he loves his steak, and he loves his pork and his shrimp, and even a glass of wine. He can eat these things because Jesus fulfilled the law. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. And our complete righteousness is in him, not in the foods that we eat. And furthermore, he knows that Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark seven nineteen. And the strong person knows he isn't bound by the religious traditions. Perhaps he's a Jewish person that once bound him, he's no longer bound by those things. Maybe he was a Gentile and, and he never was bound by those things at all to begin with. He's free to eat all these things. And these people were having difficulty getting along. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, we don't have such struggles. We have different diets among us. There's some of us who are gluten-free and some of us who are, are vegetarian and, and we don't have any problems getting along. Well, it's because our eating issue doesn't quite transfer today because our differences come by choice, maybe by health. They're not deep-rooted in our religion, but not so in the first century. I mean, for, for the first century, religion was connected with their diets. Part of following God was eating the right foods and not eating the wrong foods. God had very explicit laws about what could be eaten, what couldn't be eaten. Leviticus 11, you can read all about them. And when a Jew came to Christ, he had his diet for his whole life. And and, and these things in the past, his convictions about what made him righteous before God, still held him. And and his religious life revolved around these things. And as he came to be a Christian, he, he wasn't really particularly looking to say, okay, now I can eat pork. That wasn't on it in his heart. I know in Nepal, when the, the Hindus become believers, the, the Hindus like decry them saying, oh, that's the meat-eating religion. Right? Because they can eat the meat, they can eat the cow. And, and the Christians, right, when they're coming to Christ, that's not the first thing they think about. Oh, now I can eat cow. In fact, many of them remain vegetarians, even coming to Christ. It's just the dietary implications there. But this diet, religious conviction of the diet ran deep. And so when it came to the church of Rome, there, there were those in the church of Rome who grew up where the vegetable type trained from their youth and the importance of abstaining from these foods because those foods were unclean and you ought never to mix and mingle with those people who ate such foods because they were barbaric and you need to stay away from them because they're bad news. They're trouble. If sinners entice you, do not consent, right? If those, those eat meat eaters entice you, right? If those people who eat the pig entice you, do not consent, stay away from them. And now they've come to faith and they're in the church and they're sitting in the same pew right next to each other. These these people are the ones who were unclean and cut off from the people of Israel. And now Paul is telling them to live in humble harmony with each other. It's causing problems, disrupting the unity of the church. The vegetable only people were, were judging those who were eating anything and the meat eaters were despising those who ate vegetables being too legalistic. In fact, we see it right there in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, despite your differences, still live in unity, still welcome him. And in chapter 14, verse 3, we see this. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him, right? Don't despise others because of their diets. Don't judge others because of their diets, but live in unity with each other. Why? Because God has welcomed you both. And if God has welcomed you both, who are you to turn each other away? And the key verse, this whole section, is chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. As I've said every week, if God has welcomed him into his kingdom... We ought to welcome him into our fellowship. 
welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. As Christ has welcomed you. As, as by faith you believed and trusted in Him. And, and you stand as righteous before Him with your faith. Right? Who are we then to stand above God and say our entrance requirements are a lot smaller than God's ours. Ours are higher, right? We, we, we command a higher level. We, we've got we to be these standards. He said, no, no, if God has welcomed them into the kids' kingdom, enter, welcome him into your fellowship. And Paul's day, that meant those with different diets could come on in. And those with different views of days of worship could come on in, like whether it's the, the Sabbath days or the festival days or whether those were special holy days or whether all days were alike. Still the message is the same. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So in seeking to apply our text, I've I've tried to apply it in areas of our life where people can have different standards because of their backgrounds. That's what Paul's talking about. Different standards of maybe drinking and smoking. uh, Of different standards and and comfortability with education choices or or entertainment standards or or family sizes or Sunday activities. These sorts of things that, that can easily cause divisions in our church. And we need to see others in the church making life choices, perhaps that we never would, but that they're seeking to live out their Christianity that way and we need to accept them and need to to help them. That's what I've advocated for, an acceptance of one another, even if others have made different choices in their living than, than you have. Because that's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 14, his emphasis upon receiving others even if they differ with you. And that's difficult to do. But it's important for the unity of, of the church. Now, at this point, I do want to do a disclaimer a little bit because I think in preaching Romans 14 and doing so much about this welcome perspective that Paul is doing, I think I may have lost the emphasis about Romans in a whole. Because the same guy who wrote chapter 14 also wrote chapter 6, in which Paul exhorts us to pursue our holiness. In fact, you can turn back there, chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says this, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul calls us to a life of purity. He calls us to a life of sanctification. He calls us to a life of complete obedience to the Lord. Let not sin reign in our mortal bodies, right? Remember the outline of of Romans? The six words, right? Remember the first three is sin of where we are. And then God, how he saves us by his grace. And the third one is sanctification. Chapters six and seven. God saves us to purify us. God, God saves us to change us. And to make us walk in his image. Our lives are to be completely devoted to the Lord. And and over the past few weeks of advocating welcoming others into the fold despite their differences. That doesn't mean welcoming others into the fold despite their sin that they should turn away from. It just says how they they work themselves out is what it means. And and when when you see others just lax about their holiness or or lax about pursuing the Lord, you ought to exhort them and you ought to go to them just like Paul did. right? In fact, use Romans to say, hey, you know what? I I see in your life that it looks like you're straying. You're not following after the Lord. Follow after him. And and someone might say, well, I'm free. Isn't that what Pastor Steve preached about last week? I'm free to do all these things. I can do them, can't I? Well, yes. But he says, don't use your freedom. Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? He says, by no means. So so this isn't a matter just says, hey, we're we're so free in our liberty that we can do anything we want. No, God wants us to be free in our liberty so we can walk towards Christ. Chapter 6, verse 16 of Romans. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin that leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. We're slaves of Christ. We're slaves to righteousness, right? When we come to God in faith, it means that we have bowed the knee to the Lord, that he's our sovereign one, that we're all in with our lives, and we're going to seek to live for him with all of our hearts for all of our lives. And the issues surrounding Romans 14 aren't aren't issues of sin. They're issues of of preference. They're issues of conviction. They're issues of, of how the community deals together with those who have worked out their 
Christian lives with a little bit different ways. Even when people have strong convictions about things that maybe aren't necessarily chapter and verse, which are showing a zeal for the Lord, but maybe in a different way than someone else might, might say. And thankfully, right, those in, in Romans, right, we're following the Lord. Paul, Paul says this in Romans 6.17, Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness, Paul is thanking the Lord that in the Romans they had turned. They had become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were commended, which they were committed, which God, Paul, had, had brought to them, which the gospel had brought to them, and they had changed. That, that, that's the backdrop of Romans 14. The, the church in Rome were filled with those who trust in the Savior and living for the Lord, but they just lived differently. And Paul's assumption is they were living lives of sacrifice. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We ought to be living sacrifices. That is, that is completely devoted and dedicated to the Lord. Living completely for Him. That we ought to, verse 2, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, testing that we may discern what the will of God is, His perfect, acceptable, and good will. Pursuing completely after God, seeking not to be conformed to the world, but seeking to be conformed into the image of His Son. But that works itself out in different ways, in different people's lives. And so that Romans 14, when you think about the strong and weak of Romans 14... Don't think about committed Christians and uncommitted Christians. As if Romans 14 is speaking about those who are strong, right? These are the ones really committed. And then talking about the weak. Well, these are those who are kind of on the, on the fence or kind of, well, I'm not really sure whether I'm in or, or out or not. Don't, don't think that. Think different classes of Christians is what you should. Uh, on the one hand, you have the godly, secure, grace-filled Christians. These are the strong ones. And on the other hand, you have the legalistic, works-oriented Christians. Both are fully committed to living for the Lord with all their hearts and all their lives. But one is strong and one is weak. So picture with me the strong. He's the grace-filled Christian. Who's the old man who's walked with Christ for many, many years. He's matured over time. He knows his Bible very well because his Bible is worn out. And he reads it often. And he loves others with humility and grace. He's a strong man because he's lived through the trials of life. And he has seen the Lord sustain him through the difficulties of life. He's the man who prays alone because he lost his wife to cancer. He's the one who reads his Bible daily. Not because some external pressure that tells him to. But because he wants to commune with the Lord Loving his Savior. He's the one who prays constantly for his children and for his church and for his community. This is a faithful servant of Christ who has seen strife at the church and knows the hardship that is caused, but rather he seeks peace. And he seeks to build up the church. He seeks to build up others. He, he seeks to walk in love. And he's lived long enough to see the Lord do his work in his people. And so he's patient with others even when they disagree with him. He knows the Lord will deal with those who are genuinely his in his time and in his way. He doesn't have to interfere with the Lord's working. That's a strong believer. It's a picture you'd have in mind. The weak believer, on the other hand, is all about his religion. Equally committed to the Lord. But he's weak because he grew up in church doing lots of religious things. And he carries out these traditions of his youth. High energy, right? He's got to go, got to go, got to go, got to go. Wearing the right clothes. Being in church three times a week. Using the right version of the Bible. Staying away from the worldly things. Like dancing or alcohol. Avoiding the sinful places like bars and casinos. He's weak. Because he couldn't imagine going to church without wearing his suit. Because his suit is what makes him right before God and clean. He couldn't imagine staying home with his family rather than attending church on Sunday night because he has to attend church. Like, this is what God wants. This is what I have to do. He's weak because he can't in clear conscience read another version of the Bible other than the King James, which is the one, which is the Bible. He's, he's weak in that sense. 
He would never have a beer or step in a bar. Those who are weak then cast judgment upon those who don't live up to his standards. He wants everyone to be like him and will separate himself from those who disagree with him. There's a separation, right? We, we separate from these Christians because they disagree, differ with us on these things. Romans 14 is saying, if God Christ is welcome, you welcome. And you come in. But they're all about separation. They're about defining. They're about things. They're about tasks. They're about that sort of thing. And, and the thing about a weak person is that many things he does are great. There's nothing wrong with wearing a suit to church. Thank you, Troy. There, there's nothing wrong with going to church every time the door is open. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a favorite Bible translation that you have committed to memory. There's nothing wrong with separating from sinful environments. But the weakness comes when he sees that these things are part and parcel to what makes him godly. And to him, his godliness is wrapped up in the, the things that he does. And he would see great compromise in his heart to live any other way. And he says, when people don't live his way, there's great compromise in your heart. A very judgmental spirit of those who don't quite live up to his standard of righteousness. And furthermore, maybe what's worst of all is that what makes him weak is that he thinks he's strong. He thinks that this is what the Christian is about. Look at how strong I am. You know, the joke is told about the Presbyterian who died and went to heaven. And upon entering the pearly gates, he was greeted by some other believers who had run their course well. And, and they were rejoicing, right? Much rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. And, and soon after the, the initial greeting kind of ushered down, this, this Presbyterian man was taken to this high, tall building. And he went in with all his friends and they were rejoicing in the Lord. But as the elevator was rising up, he was going to four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, ten. As I got about ten, they started laughing and, and rejoicing again. And, and the newcomer was baffled. He said, what was that? Why so quiet? And old timer says, oh, the Baptists, they live on the eighth floor. They think they're the only ones in the kingdom of heaven. Right? But that's just this exclusionary. It's just us. We got, the, we got it right. And it's us. And see, everyone else is it wrong. And we're going to judge them and condemn them because they don't live like we do. And Paul is saying, it's not a matter of how you live like one another does. It's a matter that you accept one another. If God has accepted you, then we ought to accept you as well. Now, now that's a humorous way. I'm not trying to poke fun at the Baptist per se. But the, the weak person thinks that we're the only one who are in, right? The kingdom of God is it's just like this. You know, it's interesting that uh, we heard recently of, uh, and this, this guy's not a Baptist per se, um, of a church being planted in DeKalb, Illinois, um, because DeKalb's such a dark place and no good churches there. We're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? We helped start a church in DeKalb. We know of several churches in DeKalb. That's kind of where we're from. But oh, no gospel preaching churches there. It's like, no, I think there are, right? But how easy it for us to say, oh, we're going to go do this because there's no gospel preaching church there. We're going to do this. Oh, it's such a dark place. Like, we're the only ones. We're the saviors coming in. Rather than realizing that God is people all over the place. And we have to gladly welcome them. And the Mulders gave their testimony. When on vacation, they stepped into a church and found that God's work is alive and well all over this globe, all over this planet. And the strong person sees that, recognizes that, rejoices in that. The weak person thinks, well, nope, they're not living like we are. And they're not quite right. And so, so it's got to be us. And think about the division that causes in a church when you've got people who are just saying, this is the way. You've got to walk in my way. It just causes either everybody in the church being exactly the same or it causes fractures and division in the church. But Paul is saying here in Romans, you've got people who are different. coming. In. Isn't that the beauty of the body? That you've got arms and legs and ligaments and heads and hands and ears and eyes. And they all come together in harmony. We're different. And we come together and when Paul encourages and advocates this, this morning is he advocates bending towards others. In fact, my message this morning is called this. Limit your liberty. And that's how we all live in harmony with each other. Is if we limit our liberty. It comes from Romans chapter 14 verses 20 through 23. I finally want to read our text this morning. It's a long introduction. 
maybe a record length introduction, but I think it's helpful just to set the stage. Just we see two main admonitions here in these verses. Verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. My first point derived from this text is simply this. Don't destroy the work of God. Food's a small thing. It's a small thing. We eat some. We don't eat some. We choose what we want. It's a small thing. But as crazy as it sounds, food can destroy someone. So Paul says, verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So consider the Jews come to faith in Christ. For all his life, he's been taught eating pork's a bad thing. Don't eat the pig. It's a detestable thing. In fact, it's an abomination before the Lord. Growing up in the synagogues, he would have heard Deuteronomy 14 being taught and read. Deuteronomy 14, verse 3, you shall not eat any abomination. Continuing on, these are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Right? You can eat of all these animals. But, Deuteronomy 14, 8, the pig... Because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. The pig was an abomination. And when the Jews didn't follow the dietary laws, they were to be cut off from the people, banished from the nation. Consider, eating unleavened bread during the Passover brought that punishment. Exodus 12, 15. <clears throat> Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Cut off, outside. So you're strangers of the covenant. Get out. You ate leavened bread during the Passover. Get out. Similar punishment was given to those who ate meat without blood drained from it. Leviticus 17.10. If anyone in the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, God says, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. It's God saying, I will cut him off. Imagine a Jew thinking about being cut off from your people. And this is the same punishment for adultery and incest and murder and child sacrifice. This is how serious... God went with these things who ate the wrong things. The importance of diet was deeply ingrained in the lives of the Jews. Think about Peter. When, when he was in his house about dinner time and he's really hungry. And he's praying. He falls into this, this trance. And he saw something like a great sheet descending from heaven. And on it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds. And a voice said, rise, Peter, and eat. But he refused, saying, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And the Lord said, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then he repeats the same thing. She comes down, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, by no means, Lord. He says, what I have called clean, do not call common or unclean. And a third time, the sheep comes down, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Just by no means, Lord. I mean, just it, that kind of gives you an idea about how passionate the Jews were about not even touching the pork. He couldn't. Peter couldn't eat that way because of his conscience. I have never eaten anything unclean. So why now? Why begin? <clears throat> to him, in some ways, godliness was wrapped up in his law-keeping, religious tradition according to the law. And he just couldn't see how, how, how the, the food that had been banned his whole life, he just couldn't see eating that. It's just a huge change. 
That's why you can't teach an old dog new tricks. So oftentimes, right, people who grew up in this religious tradition, they come out of that, and there still is a lot of bondage, a lot of burden that's carried over. And so with years of that background, the Jewish converts struggle with their Gentile converts who are willing to eat anything. It didn't matter to them. And Paul's counsel to the strong Gentiles was this. He said, yes, you're free to eat. Jesus declared all foods clean. Yes, God doesn't judge you based upon what enters into your mouth. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. But listen, your Jewish brother doesn't see it that way. For him, eating those things is an abomination and one of the worst sins you could commit. So when you exercise your freedom by eating those things, your brother's offended. And in fact, you might just crush him. So here's what it is, strong Gentile. Exercise your freedom by not eating for the sake of showing your brother. Food's a little thing, right? You don't have to eat. You don't have to eat that pork. Like that's exactly what he says in verse 20 and 21. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it's wrong to make another stumble by what he eats. If you know that your brother is greatly offended by that, that he will stumble if you eat it, then love will not eat. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So church family simply say this. Limit your liberty. Yes, you're free. We talked about that last week. Yes, you're free. But for the sake of love, limit your liberty. Exercise your freedom right, right? Your greatest freedom is the freedom not to exercise your freedom for the sake of love. You remember when Paul and Silas were in the jail in Philippi and the earthquake came? And they could have escaped. They didn't. They stayed there. The jailer was about to kill himself because he knew if they escaped, he was going to be, die anyway. But for the sake of love for the jailer, they stayed. They said, oh, we're all here. We're okay. And the jailer then was amazed. He said, what must I do to be saved? And he was saved that day. If they had exercised their freedom and got out because they could have gotten out, they could have fled. The jailer would have killed himself, never come to Christ. But instead, they, they limited their liberty. They exercised their freedom by not exercising their freedom for the sake of love. And so it is with us that the greatest freedom that we have is the freedom not to execute, not to exercise our freedom for the sake of love. And it works like this, right? Someone grows up in a fundamentalist home. And, and, and to them, drinking alcohol was strictly forbidden. It was known as the juice of the devil. And those who drank were going to hell. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy. Here it is. Nor drunkards. Nor drunkards. Nor drunkards. Nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, they were told. It says, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And the point was emphasized, drunkards will not enter the kingdom of God. That, that's for the past, that's for the world, that's for them. That's what they were, but now we're not. And what's the best way not to ever get drunk is to abstain from alcohol. Because in those churches, right, nothing good ever comes from alcohol is what they hear. Nothing good ever comes from alcohol. Don't drink, don't even touch the stuff. And that's religious heritage. And he's followed that and obeyed that. And obedience to the Lord. So God, I want to do this. And I'm not going to touch that alcohol. And then he comes to Christ. And he finds grace in Jesus. Away from the works-based religion performance oriented things that he grew up in. And finally understands what full forgiveness is like. Forgiven fully by faith in Christ. Not based upon your performance. Not based upon your effort. And so he enters the congregation of those who feel free to drink their beer and wine. Like really, this is what great grace leads to this? And he's greatly offended. I mean, for him, alcohol is for those outside the church. It's not supposed to come inside the church. He struggles, what is this? And, And he stumbles. How can those who have been saved from the world still live like the world? And then he falls. If this is what genuine Christianity is about, this is what grace is about, and and liberty, I want nothing of that. I'd rather go where people are committed. 
And by exercising the freedom to drink, the weaker brother's been destroyed. So Paul would simply say, limit your liberty. For the sake of your weaker brother, don't drink. Now, stumbling can also come from the other side. Maybe there's someone who grew up and immersed in the alcohol culture. Mom drank, dad drank, and when they were seven years old, they found the whiskey cabinet, opened it up, and experienced their first buzz. When in high school, regularly went to the parties, and parties meant drinking and drugs and sex, and they enjoyed it. Then it comes to faith in Christ. It says, I need to leave that old way all behind. And, and then he comes in the church where alcohol is flowing just as freely. He says, something's wrong. He said, what is this? He says, oh, I guess if they're free to take the alcohol, I guess I, guess I am. I don't have to leave my alcohol behind. And so it begins with a drink. And then like any alcoholic, continues down that, that phase and he returns to his previous life of drunkenness. And as 1 Corinthians rightly says, no drunkard will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you, for the sake of drink, have destroyed your brother. And I exhort you, church family, don't destroy the work of God. They can come from both ways. That's why Paul says in verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's a big reason I don't drink any alcohol at all. Not a drop. Not because I don't think I have the freedom to drink. Not because I think it's morally wrong. Not because I want to impose my standard on others. If you were here last week, you will very much know I don't think drinking is a sin. I don't think it's wrong. You're more than appropriate to, to take care of that. I, um, I don't think the Bible prohibits. Now, there are dangers, right? Drunkenness is danger. I think it's wise to abstain. I don't think that's where the biblical line is. For me, that is. The Bible permits it. But for me, I've chosen to limit my liberty in this area. And Paul says a good thing in verse 21. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I'll take the good. And I have never been a cause of stum- someone stumbling because of alcohol. That's me. It's, what's alcohol? It's nothing. It's nothing. But I, I've worked hard not to push my view on you all. And that's one example of how not to destroy the, the work of God. I encourage you to think about your life. Are there areas in your life where you want to limit your liberty for the sake of others? Maybe in the movies you choose to watch. You know, I'm, I'm culturally stupid about movies. I mean, it says R. It says, no way. I've seen one R movie in my life. It's the, I forget what it's called, The Crucifixion of Christ or the... What's it called? The Passion of the Christ. I think it's the only R movie I've seen. Maybe something else. I don't know. Maybe you want to limit that. Oh, you can see that movie? Okay, I guess I can see that movie. It's not good to see. It's R for a reason. It means it's bad. But you're free. But I think that being a slave of righteousness might guide in some ways with that. Or the music you listen to. Um... Went to a Brewers game with my son this week. The Weebies gave us free tickets to that, so we went and enjoyed it. And, and they played this Name That Tune thing. I'm terrible at Name That Tune. There's no way, because I, I just don't listen to the secular music of the world. Right? And it was kind of like, oh, yeah, everyone knew that. And I'm like, I haven't heard of that one before. I'm just, I, I just, for the, for the sake, I've just chosen not to, chosen to back off. But you're free to do that. You can know, but just know that it makes them socially in awkward times. I don't know the movies or don't know the music that people are talking about. That's it's okay. I'd rather not cause someone to stumble or bring them into some things or maybe some activities you're involved in. Maybe that caused people to stumble. Oh, you're doing that? Or maybe the ways, and I think maybe this is bigger, the ways you talk about your convictions. I've had conversations with other people who who have as their convictions. Wonder, I just say amen. Applaud them for their convictions. Wonderful they have it. But the way they talk to me about it is very condescending. It made me feel like, oh, I'm, I guess I'm, that's not my conviction. I feel really bad about that. You're making me look really, really bad. You can talk about your convictions, which Paul even exhorts, that you need to, to be fully convinced in your own mind. At chapter 14 and verse 5, each one be fully convinced in his own mind. And you should have your convictions. Be fully convinced, but be careful about how you push those onto other people. 
recognize where their convictions, where their steps of holiness, righteousness that you're seeking to take, because easily can just be like, okay, well, you're doing that, I'll do that, I think I'll be as holy as you do. Because we see that in the next, that next command. We've seen don't destroy the work of God. Here it is, don't destroy your faith in God. And you can do this by just taking other people's convictions, what they have, and just making it your own. It's not your own, it's theirs. But, but they have destroyed the work because they've pushed it on you, and you have destroyed your faith because you just said, well, okay, I guess that's the way to do it. And you don't understand, right? But you've got this external, and then it becomes a work. If you, do, if you reach a work without thinking it through, it's just a work. But if you're thinking it through and have motives for why you do the things you do in a sanctifying way, then it's faith. But don't destroy your faith in God comes from verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. In other words, right? Keep your faith. Don't destroy your faith. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. At this point where Paul transitions, he, he transitions in verses 20 and 21 about a concern for other people and what your actions might do to them. Now he's concerned about your own actions, what your own actions do to yourself. He says in verse 22, your, your faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. He's talking about your own faith between you and God. In the context of Romans 14, it's, it's got to have reference to choices that you make about how your Christianity works itself out, right? You have faith in God that, that, that I'm trusting in Him and the way I'm living is the way that, that I am convinced is the way that I should walk and live with all these, all these opinions. And with different people having different opinions, as I, I said, it's easy just to look at the lifestyle of others. Even if you have your doubts, adopt their lifestyle because they look so godly. But Paul says that you make sure what you're doing is because you really believe it. Not because someone else believes it. Not because someone told you to believe it. But because you're convinced before the Lord that you believe it. Whether it's a scriptural conviction or, or how it's worked itself out or a conclusion. You say, yes, they, they live that way. I've asked and inquired. I see what they're doing. Yes, that's the way we want to live. Because with faith before the Lord. But too many people have been sucked into Christian culture that others have established for them. Without it being their own. It just leads to trouble. And how good it is to even go back to, to other people you've known who are at different churches now, right? They've, they've walked different paths. And there's so much that I can see of them. Oh, they've just picked that up. That's their Christian culture. That's what the church just does. Rather than thinking it through for themselves. And they, they probably do the same thing. Oh, that's what just what your Christian culture does. There's probably a, a lot going back and forth. I'm not sure. But too many have been sucked into the Christian cultures, led to their demise. I mean, that, that's the case. The one falls back in his alcoholism because the examples of those in the church were living out their liberty and they were pushing and encouraging. And, and to be sure, the church bears some responsibility. That's what verses 20 and 21 are about. But 22 is all about your own conviction, your own faith before the Lord. And, and the one who falls back into alcoholism, he has no one to blame but him himself. For bending to what other people saw as their liberty he didn't have his faith in God. When you do have your own faith before the Lord, you'll be blessed. And that's what the second half of verse 22 says. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself by what he approves. In other words, right, the one who's walking to his own conscience in all these things before the Lord is blessed by the Lord. And who doesn't want the blessing of the Lord? So I just say this. You want the blessing of the Lord? Be convinced of the way that you live before the Lord and live and walk that way so that in your conscience you don't condemn yourself for the way that you're living. And I say this is really important because the consequences can be grave. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And here we see the exhortation, right? Don't destroy your faith in God, right? You doubt, you're condemned. A good illustration, this is the life of Peter, just kind of along these, these same lines. I mean, he's the prime example of one struggling with the vestiges of his old religion. When the sheep came down, he refused to eat 
right? It, it, it showed that he was struggling with his former, former faith and former beliefs. I mean, think about when did it come down? It came down in Acts chapter 10. That's after all the Gospels. That's after the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ. That's after Peter faltered and was restored. to be. He's the one that opened the door to the, the Jews at Pentecost and, and you know, the church in thousands. And then the, the persecution of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, scattered the church. And Peter's one of those who's, who's going out. And he's residing in Joppa. And, and uh, Cornelius comes and calls him back to Caesarea. And so this is lots of time. Five, ten, eight years. Sometime after Jesus rose from the dead. And he's still, by no means, I've never eaten that. But eventually in Acts 10, we see the story about, about the sheep coming down and then Cornelius coming and visiting him. And, and so him going to the Gentiles, which he, he said to Cornelius, you understand how unlawful it is for me, a Jew, to, to visit or associate with anyone not of our nation. He says, but, but listen, I, I, I understand truly that God shows no partiality, but that everyone... In any nation who calls upon the Lord and fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so he went to Cornelius and to his relatives and friends. He saw the Lord move. He saw many believe and repent and be baptized. And yet still he struggled. Still he struggled with this matter of of eating with who? And we read about in Galatians chapter 2 of this encounter that he had with the Apostle Paul. Here's the conclusion first. And then he says what happened. So the conclusion is this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter? Condemned? How? And this is post-Acts 10. This is post-understanding about Gentiles being included into the kingdom. He says, Galatians 2, 12 to 14, Paul tells a story. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when the circumcision party came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. It's like peer pressure. So somehow he was with the Gentiles. Then these Jews came with these foibles, came, and he said, oh, I can't be with you guys anymore. i got to go here. It's like, it's like, do you have your faith before God or not? Or is it before people? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So not only him, but he's leading all these other Jews. And even so, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that God welcomes everyone who fears him and does what is right, calls upon the name of Christ. He said, I say to Cephas and before them all, if you, a Jew, live like the Gentiles, not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews, right? He's trying to pull them out and say, okay, well, you got to live this way. you got to pull them out. Live, live with us. Live this way. He didn't understand this whole deal of Romans chapter 14. Apparently, Peter understood how God showed him to call no person uncommon or unclean and how he had fellowship with them. But when the Jews came in, he separated from them. It shows he was just a hypocrite. He didn't have this faith that was owned. It was being impeded by others, and Paul called him Condemned. In the same sense, the same word used right here, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats. Meaning that, that your faith is not genuine. It's not right. There's something wrong there. And so with Peter's life, it just wasn't right. The hypocrisy was evident. And that's what Paul's calling us to. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. But Peter wasn't living by faith. He was living in sin. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Over an issue of seemingly small significance of eating with the Gentiles. And there might be other things. Like I just mentioned this food, right? Food is so small. Such a silly thing. That it can bring big consequences if we don't settle those things right with the Lord. And rock with Him in faith with a clean conscience. And bring judgment upon yourself. That's, that's why we see how important these things are. That's why I say don't destroy your, your faith in God. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just live along with the church culture. Be a noble Berean. Look at his word. Plead the Lord. Because the assumption of Romans, we're all seeking the Lord, right? We're seeking to live lives completely dedicated, devoted to him. We just have different ways of how it works itself out. And we need to welcome one another in unity. And I think one place where faith is super important is in the Lord's Supper, which we'll again have this morning. So if the men are ready to serve that, they can... can Get ready with that. But, but I just think about what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's about eating and drinking, right? With faith, we ought to do that. And what's the faith that we need when we eat and drink? Believing 
that I am reconciled entirely to God through faith in him. Not, not, that, not that the bread is magic or the cup is magical or, or anything that we have to do this in order to merit righteousness. This is a grace that God has given us so as to remember Christ and him crucified. I just really encourage you to eat so with, with faith before the Lord. Right? May, may this be your, your own faith before him. Keep between yourself and God. That's not to say, well, we're just me and Jesus, right? But it's that, that I am secure here with how I walk here. And when we are like that, and when we do limit our liberty, and when we are walking in love, God will build up a a unified, happy, blessed church. And we show that in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Let's let's bow our heads and let's examine our hearts, Paul tells us to in 1 Corinthians 11, before we eat. Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And just even in light of this text, one place to examine yourself might be to see how you're using your liberty. Are you flaunting your freedom or are you limiting your liberty? Out of love. That's really where this, where this goes. Let's reflect now, right? If you're a believer in trusting in Christ and walking in his ways, may, may the Lord deal with you right now. May you repent of ways perhaps where you have not limited your liberty, where you have flaunted your freedom, where you need to change that. Just deal with the Lord, confess those things, and then eat and drink. This is God's blessing. It forces us again to remember the death of Christ, that his body was broken for us, and the blood of Christ, his blood was spilled out for us as we anticipate these weeks coming up to Easter. May, may the Lord use this as a, as a time of, of great worship and trust and growing closer to Him as we commune with Him, as we commune together over the bread and the cup. God, I pray You'd be with us, bless us. God, help us to walk in unity at Rock Valley Bible Church. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.